come celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus and Rachel, Rabbis Ruben Steve. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. This is Rabbi Marcus. This is Rabbi Rachel. And we are the Rabbis Rubenstein. Back at you for another episode of the Living Jewishly podcast. Ah, we missed you all. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's been a little bit. It's been a little, little bit of time, but we're back right in time for Pesach, and we're really excited to teach you about Pesach. But before we get started, what's going on with you, Rabbi Rachel? What is going on with me? Uh, well, I feel like... During this segment of chit chat, we always talk about the weather because we live in Minnesota, and so the weather is like always on our mind. It's a Minnesota tradition to talk <laughs> but, about the weather. But I do feel like I spoke about this this past Shabbat. It was the first Shabbat of the month of Nisan, first uh, month of spring, and it felt like there actually was like a little bit of a change of weather. That like the air felt a little warmer, there was more sunshine. But I think I jinxed it because there's snow in the forecast for next I week. <laughs> and you told me that I'm just. Ignoring it in my head. I hope the weather changes before then. Oh, yeah. we, we, saw, we saw the first like spurts of grass. I haven't seen grass in like eight months. Yeah, I know. Our daughter spent some time outside. Like she can't go into our whole backyard yet because the grass is still covered in like really gross, mushy snow and other things that our dog leaves back there. But the deck is like pretty much free of snow. And so we spent a lot of time back there like doing chalk and blowing bubbles. And like she was like a different person. It was so nice to have her like outside getting fresh air, not like destroying our house or begging for TV. It was like really, really nice. A little hint of what's to come. Yes, yeah, he had he's going in one direction, but I'm going in the other. I just keep hibernating more. <laughs> I just I've recently got into indoor biking. Indoor bike. It's called Zwift. Okay. <laughs> Basically, sponsored by. <laughs> you you like attach your bike into this system and you spin your bike, and on the video screen, it shows you like where you're going. And it's a great exercise. I've, I've, I've thank, thankfully, it's been a very good exercise for me, which I've needed, but it's, it feels very Minnesotan also because it's just like, well, I'm not, not going to go outside, so I might as well just uh, bike inside. So. Anyway, Pesach. Our, our topic today, Pesach sure, Passover. We just talk about the weather the rest of the episode. I know, I kind of feel like it, but it is, as I said, it it is the month of Nisan, which can only mean one thing. Passover is coming. Yes, Passover is coming. And we really wanted to talk, I mean, every there's so much to talk about with Pesach, but what we really wanted to speak about this year is is this idea of cleaning one's house, not eating chametz, not eating. We'll, we'll explain what chametz is in just a second. And this mitzvah of where we where we don't eat bread, and and it, it seems to be kind of a time when a lot more people sort of get into trying to do what Judaism wants of us and get very into cleaning the house and doing some of those traditions. And so I think we as rabbis wanted to help you understand those traditions, where they come from. Where are the places where we could sort of go overboard with those that that particular tradition, and where are the areas that you know we can use some chizuk? Actually, we can use some inspiration, and and really, so many of us do these traditions, or and, and or try to do them, um, but many of us don't understand why and where they come from, and what exactly are we not supposed to eat, and what are we supposed to eat? What are we supposed to? All these different questions, and we really wanted to bring those in today. And hopefully for those of us who are not observing these laws uh, just yet, or it's not in your life yet, maybe this will be a great on-ramp for you to bring some of these customs and traditions into your, your yearly Passover. 
So I want to start at a important point, which is our family traditions. Um, and I really want to talk a little bit about um, what Pesach is uh, for us, and specifically this part about not eating chametz. Uh, Rabbi Rachel, what was it? What was it for you growing up? Like, what what is this? What does this part like particularly mean to you? Yeah, I mean, my family um, observed Passover pretty strictly, um, and we would buy like at, you know ev- we lived in Chicago, so Passover food was pretty accessible and abundant. And so we would just buy everything like that had a Passover uh, hexer, that had a Passover kosher or Passover marking. And there, um, I went to a Jewish school and the fundraiser that the school used to make the kids do, like other kids, I think like sold wrapping paper, like at Christmas time, we sold kosher for Passover chocolate out of like a catalog. And, but it was the same thing. You like sold a certain amount and you got some prizes. And so we always used to like have like an abundance of kosher for Passover chocolate lollipops were my favorite. Um, How am I not surprised? We also used to just like buy uh, like it's so fun. We would like totally change how we ate on Passover. Like all of a sudden we'd buy like all these potato chips and all these, like all this like processed packaged food that like we didn't typically have in the house. Like we didn't eat, like we didn't, it's not like we didn't eat them, but we didn't like have a ton of potato chips in the house all year round. But on Passover we had to get them. We specifically, these like shoestring potato chips, they were like these little, they were so good. Oh man, I still think about them. But like, (laughs) so that's kind of my association. We would change everything over. Every part of my mom's kitchen would be covered. Like all the shelves would be lined. All of the shelves in the refrigerator would be lined. All brand new food for Passover. I would eat a ton. I still eat a ton of matzah and cream cheese. Just like totally changed how we ate and and went pretty pretty strictly on our observances. How many tempty cream cheese containers do you think you make it through every Pesach? Well, I had my dad bring me four from Chicago this year. That's not enough. That's obviously not enough. I know, and that's I have to share with Hattie. (laughs) Yeah, she eats a lot of cream cheese. Yeah, Tempty cream cheese. I didn't realize that Tempty cream cheese was sold all year round in New York, Um, uh, but in Chicago, it was only sold in the grocery stores on Passover time, and it's this, for those who don't know, it comes in this like bright pink container, and it's this whipped cream cheese. Um, So A, it's marked kosher or Passover, but B, it's whipped, which makes it a lot easier to spread on matzah. I think regular cream cheese would just make your matzah crumble, so we would get tons of tempty cream cheese and yeah i mean just everything all new sets of dishes all new everything would, would be changed over for passover it's really funny we found this out because i grew up in new york and uh tempty cream cheese was just the cream cheese we had in our house that was like the <laughs> the rubenstein family cream cheese of choice so that was very funny i always enjoyed that passover for me very different i think than than rabbi rachel is because you know my family we grew up in the reform tradition we didn't really change the house very much in terms of having not having hummets it was really more the first night and, and on seder we didn't have eat bread products and then basically after that we ate whatever we wanted to eat and and it was kind of over after that point i, didn't, I don't even think i knew that Passover was seven days. I don't think I got that. Eventually, I saw that my my dad actually would go to like the diner and get like matzah instead of a bagel <laughs> at the diner. And, and I remember that he wouldn't go to the bagel store for a while, even though we would. So he would just sit there and not eat. And I was I I never really uh, quite understood why, but it obviously makes more sense to me now. And so that's just the way I grew up. But I always I always love P- Passover. I love the meaning of the holiday, and so does my parents, of course. And look, I think that that definitely is going to shape my trajectory of like becoming observant um, instead of growing up with it that really changes the way you look at observance and changes the way 
you know, kind of the struggle with taking it on and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think there is, obviously it's not like the practice that we hold or that we hope to encourage people to adapt, but there is something really beautiful about like what your dad was doing. Mm -hmm. I remember in college, I went to Washington university in St. Louis that has a very large Jewish population. So masa was pretty readily available in the dining halls. And I remember being in the dining hall and overhearing someone go to the pizza station and asking them to make them a matzo pizza, which they did, but they asked them to put pepperoni on it. <laughs> I just thought it like so funny, like a pepperoni matzo pizza. But there is something like really interesting about why Passover is so compelling. And like even someone who's going to readily eat pepperoni pizza still wants to have it on matzah for that week instead of bread. Like there is something that like draws people or like your dad, like going to the diner and having like non-kosher meat, but like wanting it to be with matzah. There's like something so compelling about Passover and matzah in in American Jewish culture, and I don't know, it's interesting to delve into. Yeah, I think we'll get we'll get into that when we talk a little bit about the why and why chametz is different and what it what it spiritually means. And I think maybe we'll we'll circle back to that at the end. Um, so let's get into the what though. Well, what what is chametz and and uh, why why aren't we supposed to eat it? Um, well, uh, chametz is any uh, any grain product, basically. From the five grains. From the five grains um, that are leavened or let to be leavened in yeast, um, which basically, according to our rabbis, means sitting in a yeast mixture for about 18 minutes. And then uh, it's grown or it's leavened enough so that it's considered leavened bread and therefore considered chametz. And that that is what chametz is. And we are commanded on Pesach according um, to Exodus 13.3, it's one of actually the first mitzvot we gain as a community in the Torah, um, to not eat chametz on Pesach, to not eat chametz on Pesach, specifically the mitzvah, um, to not eat it. Um, and that is, that it's somehow lined up with being freed from Egypt. Um, this exact verse is, remember this day on which you went free from Egypt, the house of bondage, how the Lord freed you from it with a mighty hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. It's pretty, pretty clear mitzvah. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Right, very clear mitzvah, and but it's kind of a non sequitur, right? I, I, I think it's, it seems like it's almost like thrown in here, which is I think how we get into this whole entire idea that the the Jews didn't have time to bake their bread and because they were rushing to get out, um, and so therefore uh, they that's why we don't eat chametz because it seems to be constantly the prohibition of eating chametz is constantly sandwiched to the redemption from Egypt um, to, to being freed. It is kind of a funny mitzvah when you think about it, because like these people had just been freed from Egypt, like with plagues and a splitting of a sea and like all of these crazy miracles. And then God has to tell them, Oh, and like, just so you don't forget it, make sure you don't eat bread for a week. Like as if they, that's yeah. going to make them remember all of these crazy miracles that they themselves just witnessed. Like there's something so interesting about like the human psyche that we need these reminders, even for these like momentous, really light once in a lifetime momentous moments um, of experiencing God. Like there's something really fascinating about yeah, that. People, people love bread. Just talk to anyone <laughs> who tries to cut down carbs, how much it means to, it's on their mind. If you cut down bread or gluten, you know, whatever I mean, it is. Red sea, schmed sea, but cut out bread and then you'll really remember. <laughs> The Jews need their bales. Um, yeah, so that's the, the mitzvah of not eating um, chametz on Pesach. But it's not only uh, not eating. A lot of people um, mistake this and think that the only thing is really that you're not supposed to eat it. But it's even more than that. Um, this mitzvah is repeated multiple times in the Torah with a little bit different language. And each time 
you know, it's repeated with a little bit different language. The rabbis understand the mitzvah a little bit differently. So um, in Exodus 13, 7, only four verses later, it says, uh, throughout the seven days, unleavened bread shall uh, un- unleavened bread shall be eaten. And that's where we get um, that you should be eating matzah during the seven days. You shall see no leavened bread and no leaven shall be seen in all your territory. Okay. And so, all of a sudden, we have the language change from eating chametz that you should be forbidden to eat chametz to all of a sudden you should not see chametz, um, and that's pretty hard, right? Like not seeing something—that's pretty strange mitzvah to have a mitzvah where you're you're actually commanded not to look at something, right? That's that seems to be very strange. So how do how do the rabbis interpret um, this particular mitzvah, which is very different from other things? Like if I lived with non-Jewish roommates and they were cooking bacon, like as long as they weren't. I wasn't using that same pot that they were cooking on and like I wasn't eating it. Like there's no problem. Like I'm not violating any mitzvah of seeing non-Jews eat bacon. But if I lived with non-Jews, it would be complicated. Like there is something I'm not supposed to be seeing the chametz in, in my home. Right. Which is, which is really, really important. I mean, it's, 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 and it's a strange thing. It's, it's also the reason why we're going to talk about this a little later, but like when we talk about selling chametz, it's not okay just to sell your chametz, you also have to still hide your chametz and store it behind something that you're not going to see because of this mitzvah of not seeing. And then lastly, the third mitzvah around chametz in the Torah here about specifically prohibiting it is, is it about it being owned? This, this verse um, specifically says in 12, Exodus 12, 19, no leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the community of Israel whether he is a stranger or a citizen of the country, right? Um, so the verb, the first verb that's being used is ochel, eat. The second verb being used is re, which is see. And then we have this verb yimsa, yimsa inside the house, that is found within the house. Um, and this, you know, I'm, I, I have the whole Talmud here of the whole entire passage, how the, the rabbis derive this, but it's been interpreted over the, uh, over the ages to mean um, specifically that we're not allowed to own chametz, Right, we're not allowed to actually own it, and that's that's a very very important idea. Is that we're not supposed to own chametz either, right? So it it really is about not eating chametz, not consuming chametz, but not seeing it, not owning it within your household, not owning it, and not benefiting not benefiting uh, from it as well, not gaining financial gain from it as well, which is which is really 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 important, and and sort of um, gives us all of that's you know because. If you really think about it, right, if I'm not supposed to eat hummus, why do I have to search my house for it? Why do I have to get rid of all the hummus in my house? Can't I just choose not to eat it? Like, I don't usually eat brownies every day. That doesn't mean I have to get all the brownies out of my house, speak right? For, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself. We can exercise self-control. So if it really was just about eating, it w- there would be no cleaning the house. There would be no getting rid of the stuff for Pesach in the same way. But I want to really bring home that it's actually all of these things. Right, which leads to something that a lot of people are familiar with, which is mechira, selling our chametz. So I think a lot of people um, are familiar with this custom, and if you're not happy to explain it to you now, so there's a custom of um, selling your chametz. So uh, not only do we not eat it, not only do we put it away so we don't see it, but if we're not even allowed to own it, then like, what do we do? It came to the rabbis even very long time ago of like, what do you do if you have like, a very expensive bottle of whiskey. Like whiskey is made out of wheat. Wheat. Well, it depends, Rachel. 
corn, whether, barley. Okay, corn might be okay, but whether it's made out of barley or wheat, neither are acceptable. Those are both part of the five grains. So, um, I think Rabbi Rachel just said I can drink bourbon on, on Passover. So. <laughs> didn't you find like 100% corn bourbon one year? I did. That, oh, was I did. Anyway. <laughs> but if you have a very expensive bottle of scotch or whiskey, um, that's it's, it's clearly chamates. You're not allowed to drink it for sure. You're not allowed to see it. You're not allowed to even own it. So like, what are you supposed to do? Like pour it down the toilet or like give it away to your non-Jewish neighbor? Like maybe, but that could be a a serious financial loss. It really came about uh, for Jews who owned like factories or, you know, warehouses or liquor stores. Like they can't get rid of all of their inventory. That would be a huge financial loss. Um, so what are you supposed to do? And th- this came about the this kind of halachic loophole of selling your chametz. So this prohibition against owning chametz only applies to Jews. Non-Jews have no need to get rid of their chametz. So what came about to be is that we would sell our chametz, any chametz that we really couldn't get rid of, like a very expensive bottle of whiskey, we would sell it to a non-Jew. Um, so technically for the period of Passover, those seven or eight days of Passover, they would own that bottle of whiskey. They would own our chametz, um, which is another reason why we for sure can't, it has to be like locked away. Not only can we not see it, but it's not even ours. We can't own it. Um, so while you didn't necessarily have to get, get it out of your house, you could put it in like a locked liquor cabinet. You, It's not yours. It's someone else is owning it. A non-Jew is owning it. Therefore, you're not violating the prohibition against owning your chametz. It, there is the there is the understanding, of course, that the non-Jew will give it back to you after after Passover. But like technically, they don't have to. Technically, they own it. I mean, we can get more into it that usually, usually they just like put a deposit, you put it like a deposit down that like they're in the process, they give you a dollar. So they're going to, they're going to buy it. They make an agreement to buy it. But if they don't finish the agreement by the end of Passover, it reverts back to us. So there's like, there's some lots of legal loopholes of how we sell it and how we get it back. Um, but it's like interesting how uh, like, how much the rabbis worked to make it so that we could observe this Torah commandment um, actually out in our lives. Like they knew we lived real lives and they're messy and complicated and you can't just like burn your house down or move to a Passover condo in Florida for a week where you don't own anything. Like you have to, you have to live in a real life. But if anyone wants to give us one, just let us know. We'll take it. <laughs> you go on one of those like Passover cruises. Um, <laughs> but, but, and I, when I think something to clarify about the selling of chametz is that like, yes, it's a legal loophole. Um, but I think sometimes people over rely on it. I'll be honest. Like, I think some people don't make any effort to get rid of the chametz in their house and they're just like yep I'm just like selling all the chametz in my house like I have like an old you know bagel in my freezer that's been there for six months but like I don't need to get rid of it because I'm just gonna you know it'll just be included in my sale like you should really make every effort in the weeks leading in the weeks leading up to Passover to try and like consume down your freezer stash, like eat the chametz that's in your house, donate the chametz that you can donate, like all of the, you know, pastas and rice, you know, it's not rice, all the pastas and cereals, like all those things that are closed, you should try and donate. We're doing a food drive here at Temple of Aaron for Neighborhood House. Bring it over here. Get, it's a great way to get ready for chametz. And then the stuff that's left that like you would really be a financial loss to get rid of or it would really be uh, wasteful to like throw away an almost full, 
you know, bag of, of something like, yeah, then you should sell it, but you should really make every effort. I think in the spirit of the law to, to try and eat it down or to donate it. I think Rabbi Rachel just likes to clean out the refrigerator. So that feels, uh, feels well, like a good thing. It is ironic. Everyone always notes that like, it is ironic that literally one month before Passover, we have Purim where it's literally a mitzvah to like give bags of food to our neighbors. And those bags are like always filled with like pretzels and cookies and like all of this chametz one month before we have to then get rid of all of our chametz. So the Jewish calendar does try and play some funny tricks on us. But Right, right. So speaking of, I, I think an important question to ask is, you know, when does this start? When do we, when do we have to stop eating chametz? Because it's not the, you think you stop eating chametz when Pesach comes, right? Exactly, right? Like, are you supposed to, like, in the moments before the Seder, be, like, scarfing down your last bagel and pasta, like, trying to, like, get all your chametz in for the week? No. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, there's kind of a little calendar in the day leading up to, to Passover. So the night, it starts really the night before. The night before Passover begins, you're supposed to do what's called bidikat chametz, searching for chametz. And that's where um, you... Uh, after you have thoroughly cleaned your house, so there's no chametz left, you're supposed to symbolically take 10 crumbs. Oftentimes people will wrap them in foil because they just went through all the work of cleaning their house. They don't want to put 10 pieces of bread all over their house. But they'll put 10 pieces of bread, small pieces of bread, in different places in our house. And they'll take a feather and a candle and they'll search. They'll symbolically search for those last 10 pieces of chametz. Um, and it's like really, it's it seems kind of silly. And it, oftentimes we do this with kids, but it is kind of um, like psychologically helpful, I think, of like, okay, I did all this work. I cleaned my house. Like, I know that there's still going to be some chametz that I missed. So what I'm going to do to like allow myself to be okay with that is I'm going to symbolically, it's almost like um, immersion therapy. I'm going to like go ahead and sprinkle the chametz I tried so hard to get rid of around my house. And I'm going to like, I'm going to like symbolically collect them and be like, all right, now I'm done. I'm not going to drive myself crazy. Like thinking about any last crumb that I left underneath the couch. Like I've done it. I collected my last 10 pieces. You collect them in. That's your badikat chametz. You're searching for chametz. Hold on to those 10 pieces. And then we go to the next morning. Can I, can I interrupt for a second? I think it's, and it's just important to say with what you just said is that I think one of the reasons that you don't have to be nervous is because remember that for most part you're selling People are selling their their Passover chametz, and if you can't find it, even if it is under the couch or it's somewhere uh, stuck in the walls or something like that, um, since you've sold it, it's considered as if it's hidden away, specifically because you can't see it, and you've sold it, so it doesn't belong to you anymore. So you really don't have to worry about it because it's not you're actually not like violating anything. You've done what you're supposed to do. There's actually several layers that the rabbis give us in order to alleviate that fear. You're right. Like the selling of it is one layer. Then we do the bidikat chametz. We search for the chametz the night before. And then the next day, if you are uh, a firstborn male, then you would do your fast of the firstborn and come to our seum where you can we'll celebrate with Rabbi Marcus as he finishes a book of Torah uh, that concludes with a festive meal. Another little loophole that we have of not having to fast that day. Jews really don't. <laughs> we, <laughs> we love like to get rid of our food. We, we like our like legal to, loopholes. Yeah. Um, okay. And then we're at the next morning. So now we have to kind of delve into a little bit about what is a halachic hour. You want to talk about what a halachic hour is? Do I want to talk about what a halachic hour is? 
Uh, maybe. All right, a halakhic hour. I'll do it quickly. A halakhic yeah. hour is I basically. Feel like if I did it, I would take too long. Yeah, basically, we take the amount of sunlight that we have during the day, so from sunrise to sunset, and we divide that into twelve. So it's not going to exactly be sixty minutes because, of course, in the winter there's a lot less sunlight than in the summer. So the halakhic hour in the winter is going to be a lot shorter than the halakhic hour in the win- in the summer. But anyway, so you take the amount of sunlight that you have in the day, you divide it into 12. Don't worry. You can just Google what, what is the halakhic hour today in, in my city. minutes in Passover. <laughs> Perfect. In Passover. So think, thankfully, Rabbi Google can tell you that information quickly. Um, so at the at the end of the fourth halachic hour of the day, so f- at the end of four hours after sunrise, which in St. Paul on the day of Passover will be about 11 a.m., that's when you have to have finished eating your last chametz. So you can like have your nice bagel breakfast. If you come to the Temple of Aaron for our CM, we'll feed you your bagel breakfast. It'll be great. Um, have your nice bagel breakfast and then be done. By 11 a.m., you should be done eating chametz. Then you have one more hour. By the end of the fifth halakhic hour, you have to do your last symbolic ritual with chametz, and that is uh, bior and bitul chametz. That is the uh, burning and nullification of chametz. Um, basically, what we do is we take those 10 pieces of chametz that we found the night before during our patikad chametz, during our search for chametz, and we actually physically burn them. Like, you can go out. If they're wrapped in tinfoil, you should unwrap them because the tinfoil is not going to burn. You, like, go out, and I'm never successful at this. I always, like, burn the paper bag they're in, and then you're left with, like, a bunch of chametz. charred chametz on your on your lawn. Um, but you should safely try and burn that chametz. Some people actually have the um, custom of keeping their lulav, from from Sukkot and having dried it out from Sukkot to now and use that as the kindling for burning your chametz. Um, those are organized people. <laughs> those are organized people. You burn your chametz and then you do the, you say this formula, this, it's called B-tool, it's called nullification. And basically you say, all right, I did my best. I did everything I could to try and rid my house of chametz. I either uh, finished eating it all, or I threw it away, or I donated it. Anything I couldn't do that, I put aside and I sold it. And I searched everywhere. Anything that I missed, any little crumbs underneath the couch, anything that I missed, it's like afadara. It's like dust of the earth. <laughs> this is when I go around the house saying afadara. <laughs> Every bad thing I've afadara. Just throw my hands. Exactly. And you say this formula. Um, it's written in Aramaic, but you actually should say it if you can read Aramaic. Say it in Aramaic, but also say it in English. You can understand that, right? Actually, say it in English because um, you're supposed to really know what you're saying here. This is a real formula. You're supposed to be saying like, "Look, I did my best," and I think it's halakhic. It's like a it's a legal formula, but it's also psychological. Like. I did my best. And we'll get into why it's psychological when we talk in just a minute about why chametz and like what is the spiritual meaning of chametz. But there you go. Just to um, really quickly review, night before Passover, you search for chametz. Morning of Passover, you finish eating chametz by around 11 a.m. in St. Paul. By noon, you burn the last remnants of your chametz and you say this formula to nullify any remaining crumbs that you missed in your house. Nullify, they're like dust of the earth. They no longer exist. Yeah, really important. And, and why do we destroy the chametz is because it's a specific mitzvah in the Torah to destroy chametz. And Exodus twelve fifteen, it specifically says that you should destroy uh, destroy the chametz. The word is actually tish, tish, tashbitu, right, which means to actually like Shabbat to actually stop it. 
right? But that's usually interpreted to destroy or to nullify it. Um, so there's actually a specific mitzvah beyond just not eating, not owning, not benefiting, not seeing, but actually to destroy the chametz that you have left as well. Um, so that's that's why we're why it's so important. One, one point I missed that um, we talked about selling chametz. When is the last time that you can sell chametz? It's the same as when you burn the chametz. So that you, you have until about noon, the morning of the Seder. So sometime before the morning of the Seder, finish selling all of your chametz. Well, well, that's when, according to the Torah. But according to our rabbis, it would be 11 o'clock. Right. Be an hour before. Home. Right. Well, because you need to, you're kind of, you're, well, you also are giving the form to us to sell on your behalf. So we need to have time to do it as well. So I think... Temple of Aaron might even say 10 a.m. I'm going to give all these stringencies. I'm slow. <laughs> Sometime in the morning before Passover, uh, sell your chametz. Right. Why Why is this such a serious mitzvah? I mean, there are so many mitzvot in the Torah that are really serious, that are written in the Torah, but why is this specific one taken so seriously? Uh, I think that's a, that's a really important question. Um, one of the reasons is because it, eating chametz on Pesach and violating these rules really the punishment for it, according to the Torah, is this idea of karate, or spiritual excision from, our, from from the Jewish community as a whole, right? These are considered mitzvot that are essential to what it means to be a Jew, and that without doing them, somehow um, you are spiritually cut off. And that actually is worse than the death penalty, actually. Uh, karate is considered more severe, um, and it's in the hands of God. So I think people took this punishment, because of this punishment, they took it um, so very, very seriously. Um, and why to this day, why so many of us also take it seriously? And of course, um, we know that there are some in our community that aren't following all these laws, and uh, we love you, uh, and we support you, um, and we help. We hope to help to guide you to follow more of these laws in the future, um, but with, with a loving hand. And so we don't mean to scare anyone, obviously, but we also mean to tell you the facts and tell you what's written there. Well, I even mean, I think it's also important to know that kare, even like from a Jewish understanding, um, it's like a spiritual excision. Like mm-hmm. God is, is you're, you're separating yourself from God and from your relationship with God. It's not up to us as your rabbis to be like, you're no longer allowed inside the building of Temple of Aaron because you're cut <laughs> off from our Jewish God community. Um, it's more about a spiritual state of like, you have like lost out on this opportunity to be in relationship with God. Yeah, yeah, which is which is really important, and why, that's one of the reasons why it's important also not to be judgmental about those who eat chametz or those who don't. Um, that's between them and God, uh, which is which is really really important. I, I think also important to mention as well is that um, the 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 about chametz, most foods that are prohibited to eat, um, like let's say. Um, Bacon, right? Like a forbidden meat or a mixture of milk, milk and meat. Usually, it's considered bitul b'shishim, right? Nullified in one sixtieth. So, if it's less than, if the proportion is, if the forbidden ingredient is less than one sixtieth of the whole entire food, then it's considered still permitted after the fact. So, classic example: you're making a pot of chicken soup, and a drop of milk falls into your chicken soup. Do you have to throw away the whole pot of chicken soup? Actually, you might. You might. Guess yes, but actually the halacha is no, you don't, because um, it is bitul bashishim. The little drop of milk is less than one sixtieth of the entire amount of chicken soup, and so it kind of uh, just null. It's nullified. It, like it is, is it, it is as if it doesn't exist because it's such a small drop. Right, and this is freeing, and this is why most of the time you can look on food packaging or you can look on something and say, you know what, um, 
there's less there's obviously even if there isn't a forbidden ingredient inside it's going to be less than 60th it's a tiny little chemical it's this and that we can not not have to worry about to it. be to be clear this is uh Bidiava. this is after the fact you should not add a little bit of like cream to your chicken right. soup because you're trying to make it taste better and say oh but it's nullified no 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 this is not Absolutely. intentionally adding in a little bit of you know non-kosher mixtures this is just after the fact if by accident it happened right so but Chametz, on the other hand, is much more stringent than that. And the rabbis say, kol shahu, you know, any, any which bit, any amount of chametz whatsoever is considered forbidden. Um, and the, the rule of bitul b'shishim, at least during Passover, as we'll talk about, nullified by 160th is not in effect. That any amount of chametz is considered forbidden. And I think that's why people also took this mitzvah so seriously, um, that any amount of chametz, even a little bit of sediment, is considered just as forbidden um, as anything else. so Right. So to clarify, if like a non-Jew is like eating a sandwich over your, you know, over your like mixture and a little bit of their crumbs falls into your food, you cannot eat it, even though um, during the rest of the year you might be able to if it was a little bit of non-kosher food. But on Passover, a little bit of chametz means the entire thing is chametz. You cannot eat it. Right. Right. Wonderful. So I think this is a good um, way to sort of get into why the why questions of chametz, like why why don't we eat chametz on Pesach? Like what is the meaning for it? Why is it so stringent? Um, and, and of course, the, the first answer to this question in terms of the meaning question is like why we don't eat it is because the Torah says so, right? Because God commands us not to eat chametz on Pesach, period, right? That is the arch reason, right? Is we have a commandment, we are supposed to observe it, period. Now, that being said, um, it is still fun and still meaningful to think about why and what is the spiritual meaning behind chametz, right? And, and there are many different ideas that we hear throughout Torah and different Jewish thinkers, the chametz being sort of symbolic of the yetzer or hara, sort of the evil or selfish inclination uh, within a person. There's, there's many, many sources that say that chametz is very similar um, to uh, avodah zarah or idolatry, so much so that the Zohar literally says that eating chametz on Pesach is akin to serving a foreign god, right? At, at, to bowing down to an idol. So there's a lot of tie-ins um, between the, the prohibitions of eating chametz and prohibitions of, of, of avodah zarah, of idolatry. But I think in the end, it really gets down to really what Pesach's all about. And, and the, the lamb sack, the traditional Paschal offering that was offered um, at the time uh, when the temple existed um, or the Mishkan or the tabernacle. The, the Jewish people would come together and offer this lamb sacrifice. And right from the beginning, the lamb sacrifice was an act of rebellion. Why? Because the lamb was a worshipped animal in Egypt. So by sacrificing it, you're really saying, we don't even believe in your arch god. Even though you're much stronger than us and much more powerful than us, right? We, we are going to resist. We're going to stand up and do what we think is right and worship the one god. So it's this act of identification with this small, dastardly group of people that's able to stand up against a larger odd. And, and from that, even from that, that first instance where we wiped the lamb's blood on our doorposts of our house so that the Malachamavit, the angel of death, wouldn't strike our firstborn down, Right. Even after that, it became an act of identification uh, with the Jewish people to go down to Jerusalem and offer the Passover sacrifice. So most many of the mitzvot of Passover also have to do with this. And and I think chametz kind of falls into the same category that by not eating chametz on Pesach, we are designating ourselves and saying we are part of the Jewish people. 
We are part of this holy people that is resisting, uh, that is standing up, and we are identifying through that mitzvah with this people and with our God, which is which is maybe why people cling to it so much, is that it, people wanted to say, maybe I don't follow everything else, but I want to keep my Jewish identity. I am Jewish, and I'm a proud Jew, and this is how I'm going to do that, right, and maintain my loyalty to the Jewish people and to God in that way. Any other ideas about chametz you want to talk about, Rabbi Rachel? I mean, I think there's also an idea um, in some Jewish sources that, like, fair, like chametz is associated with Pharaoh, right? Like, of the like puffing up of himself over God and puffing himself and his like own ego and his own, and that um, chametz is this like puffed up leavened bread, and that kind of with the "you are what you eat" type of uh, mentality. That like for one week we're supposed to be eating matzah is this weird thing because it's at the same time, matzah is the bread of freedom. It's like associated with our with the Exodus, but it's also the bread of affliction. It's the bread of slavery. So matzah is this like weird thing of like, it's almost like through affliction, through humbling ourselves, that's when we're really able to be free as opposed to like the puffed up challah and the puffed up Pharaoh of like thinking that we are in control of our own lives um, and we're so powerful and we have our own ego and we don't need to be submissive to, to any sort of God or greater power than ourselves. But in actuality, that's actually keeping us enslaved. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really, really beautiful and such an important idea. And I just lastly, I want to go back to the story of like what, why in the first place do we not eat chametz on Passover? Right, is because the 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 story we always tell is because the Jewish people were leaving Egypt very quickly and they didn't have time to bake their matzah, and we know that we didn't they didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise. Right, and we know um, that it's not it wasn't easy to leave Egypt. It wasn't easy to leave all of their things behind and their lifestyle behind and everything they knew. They were enslaved in, in Egypt for a very long time. But part and parcel of what it means to be a Jew is to be ready to get up and leave when you need to. If, if, if one sees evil happening or oppression happening or something that's against God's will in the world, part of what it means to be a Jew is to have the strength of character and the dedication and faith in God to stand up and say, I'm not going to be a part of this, even though it's going to make my life more uncomfortable, more difficult, right? Couldn't you have just waited eight, ten more minutes so that the bread could have risen and then we would have never had to eat, you know, not not eat hummets and everything like that? No. God said to leave now, so we leave now. And I think that's a very important part of what it means to be a Jew. Since we spoke about that now, of the dedication of getting up and doing what God asks, we understand that not eating hummets and cleaning out your house and getting the right food and everything like this is extraordinarily, it, it, it's tiring. It's very tiring. Um, and we, we respect that and we understand that. Um, and so Rabbi Rachel and I wanted to come together and give you uh, some tips, um, some rules to follow that maybe might possibly uh, make your cleaning better. It might help guide your process of how you prepare for Pesach in your home. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that one of my favorite stories from rabbinical school came from uh, one of our rabbis, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, and he would teach us the laws of of kosher, the laws of Passover, and he would always start the class by saying, um, you know, he's this like expert in Jewish law. He's probably one of like the greatest conservative rabbis living today, and um, so he knows like every you know 
know, every detail of what it is that you actually need to do and what you don't actually need to do. Um, and he would go into his kitchen where his wife was preparing for Passover and he would say, oh, sweetie, like you actually don't need to do that. And she would say, get out of here. I don't want you to trafe up my kitchen. <laughs> you know, she'd tell this like great rabbi, I don't want you to make my kitchen not kosher. And so I'll say that like, that's a big part of it. Like, I think a lot of these are inherited traditions. Maybe we saw our parents cleaning our houses that way, or this is how we learned how to do it ourselves. Um, and so we're hopefully going to give you some tips and advice to our, uh, we promised by the title of our podcast to make uh, koshering for Passover easier. But again, if you find these things meaningful, you don't necessarily it's not like you can't do some of these extraneous things, but you maybe don't have to. So the first thing is like tinfoil everywhere. I don't know if anyone has seen these memes or these pictures of like kitchens where like literally every surface is covered in tinfoil. That seems to be how some people prepare for Passover. Like I don't really understand how to kosher my house for Passover. So I'm just going to cover every surface um, in tinfoil and hope for the best. Not exactly the case. The, The main principle that you need to walk away with when you're thinking about how to make things kosher. And by the way, this counts for making uh, things kosher for Passover. It also counts for making things, switching them between meat and dairy or making things going from uh, something that previously had had been uh, exposed to non-kosher food, making it kosher. So all of these are the same principle. And the principle is kevolo kachpolto. And that's the principle that as something is absorbed, that is how it's purged. What that means is that as something, the way you cook with something is the same way that you purge it, that you make it kind of clean again. You make it um, coat like neutral and you're able to then use it for Passover or going from meat to dairy. So what does that mean? It means like if you have a pot that you like boil water in and then use it to cook pasta. So obviously that pot has now been used to cook hummates. You can't use it for Passover. And if you wanted to make it kosher for Passover in the same way that you boil water to cook food in it, you would take that pot, you would clean it out really well. You would uh, wait, don't use it for a day. And then you would boil water in it. Um, and you want to make sure every surface is covered in in boiling water so you would either you know put it put a smaller pot into a larger pot so that both the inside and the outside of the smaller pot is covered in the water or you could take a hot stone and make it so that the water overflows we can talk about if you have specific questions about how to kosher kosher something don't rely on a podcast call call me or your rabbi and we're happy to talk you through how to kosher something specifically but that's the principle that okay i cook with it in this way by boiling water. So that's the same way I'm going to make a kosher by boiling water. A frying pan that you kind of cook directly on the fire. You don't use, you don't boil water in a frying pan. You like put it directly on the fire and cook your food directly in it. So in the same way, you have to expose it to really hot fire. You take a blowtorch and you blowtorch the uh, the frying pan to make it really, really hot. And, you know, it's in the same way that that you cook with it and with really hot temperatures. That's the general principle. So you don't necessarily, a lot of things can be koshered. A lot of countertops, not all countertops, but a lot of countertops materials can be koshered by boiling, pouring boiling water over it. Silverware can be koshered by immersing it in boiling water. So I, again, I'm happy to go through specifically, or you can look up the rabbinical assembly Passover guide which is a link is in our Temple of Aaron Passover emails, or you happy to, to reach out to us and we can send you a link, or you can Google Rabbinical Assembly Passover Guide. It has a really detailed guide of how to make different things kosher. But I think that's a really important concept is that you don't need to just like, oh, this thing, well, you know, I ate bread on this plate or on this, uh, I cooked bread in this pot, so therefore I'm never able to use it again on Passover, but I can't afford another pot, so what am I supposed to do? Really, you know, pretty simple. You can, you can make a lot of things kosher. So why the tinfoil then? So you can't, 
make everything kosher. So like there are some surfaces like, um, uh, like a porcelain sink, for instance, a porcelain sink can't really be made kosher at Passover. A metal one can, but a porcelain, not so much because it's a material that like is porous. So it absorbs the flavors and can't really be purged. So in that case, you would have to line it. You have to like use a dish basin or, you know, certain countertops. Like I think butcher block can't be kosher. So you would need to like cover that with tinfoil or plastic or something. So there are things that just should be covered. In general, things are made non-kosher or uh, like non-kosher Passover with heat. So if something is never exposed to heat, like your refrigerator, you're not putting very hot things, like things that are hot to the touch, like you would have to, if you touched it, you'd have to pull your hand back. Um, that's kind of the uh, level of heat that that we're talking about. You don't put things like that in your in your fridge usually, you know, like usually even like if you took something out of the oven, you let it cool before you put it in your fridge. So therefore the shelves of your fridge don't need to be lined. They're not non-kosher. You should still clean them out. You should wipe out all the crumbs. There shouldn't be anything visible. But like if the glass, the glass plates and the glass shelves in your dishwasher are fine. They don't need to be covered. Your cupboards. Exactly. Your pantry, like you should vacuum them out, wipe them out, make sure there's no crumbs, but you're not putting hot things into your pantry. So they don't need to be covered or made kosher. Kidney oat. This is another point of importance. So kidney oat, a lot of people have heard of kidney oat. What are kidney oat? Kidney oat are legumes. Um, And back in the time of the rabbis, they were stored in the same storehouses as grains. So you would have like it's a legume corn. You'd have like corn or rice stored in the same um, in the same storehouses as grains, and so it's possible that they would get like mixed up together, or you know you couldn't tell necessarily tell the difference on, at a quick look between the two of them. And so for Ashkenazim, for Jews from Eastern Europe, you would traditionally not eat kidney. You would not eat things like corn or rice on Passover. However. Sephardim, people who come from uh, Spain and other countries from the Spanish Africa. from the Spanish diaspora, they uh, do, they didn't have they they didn't have the same cultural phenomenon of storing these things together. So they never developed this tradition of avoiding these foods. So they've always eaten kind of corn and rice on Passover. A question often comes up, like if I'm someone who doesn't eat kidney oat, but I go to someone's house who does eat kidney oat on Passover, like what am I supposed to do? Like, can I not eat on their dishes because they? because they eat kinyo, which I think are forbidden on Passover. You absolutely can go to their house. You should go to their house. You can eat their dishes, avoid the kidney oat if you want to avoid the kidney oat, but you can eat everything else that was prepared for in that meal. Uh, the reason being is kidney oat is not chametz. That's like a really big point. Chametz is chametz. Things that are made of the five grains is chametz. Kidney oat, People, you have the custom of avoiding them on Passover, but it is in no way chametz. There all of these Torah prohibitions that we talked about, about owning it and seeing it and eating it, do not apply. Um, and so you should absolutely eat in community with one another, go to each other's houses. You do not have to worry um, if someone has a different custom around kidney oat than you do. A few years, was it last year? A few years ago, the conservative movement did approve a tshuva, approved a, um, a legal thought saying that even if you're Ashkenazi, even if you have the like kind of familial tradition of not eating kidney oat on Passover, we're like at this point we're all like one Jewish people and we should all try and like do our best to to share customs with each other. So if you choose, you can eat kidney oat on Passover, even if it 
previously hadn't been your tradition to do so, um, which I'll say that uh, our family has embraced and we will eat like hummus on Passover. Uh, hummus is made out of chickpeas, which is a legume, but like it's not it's not non-kosher Passover. We we embrace it. I think also it's, it's saying something about, look, the technological problem that caused this prohibition of eating kidney oat is no longer here, right? We can tell you for sure that there is no hummus in a can of beans, right? If the FDA says so. I'm pretty sure that they've checked pretty well, right? Those people who have... You can even rely on, they have Passover hashkachas for Sephardim. Like they have like rabbi, you know, the the kosher organizations will go in and check and tell you there is 100% not chametz in this can of beans. Right, which is, yeah. It's amazing that that exists. Um, yeah, so just, just important to know. And then I guess the final thing I'll say is like, this is not spring cleaning. Cleaning for Passover is not spring cleaning. You can, if you choose, to use it as an opportunity to like clean the cobwebs from, you know, in, from your closet. But if you never eat in your bedroom, like you never, ever bring food into your bedroom, then you don't need to clean your bedroom for Passover. If there is no chance that there is chametz in your bedroom, you do not, if you never eat in your bathroom, and I hope you don't. If you never eat in your, I mean, look, I have a toddler, so chametz is everywhere, everywhere. in our house. She like just walks around with a cracker and spills crumbs look, everywhere. She does it purposely. <laughs> so I won't, you know, if you eat in your bathroom, so does, so does my three-year-old. So you're in good company. But if there are places in your house that you never, ever, ever bring food, you don't need to clean them. This, if there's dust, dust is not chametz. If there's dust, if there's cobwebs, if there's dirt, that is not chametz. You don't need to clean it for Passover. You might want to clean it, to clean it, but you don't need to clean it for Passover. That's the, that's the general rule. So where, what should you focus on for cleaning for Passover? You should focus on cleaning out your kitchen, cleaning out your dining room, cleaning if you eat on the couch like we do. Make sure you look under those couch cushions. They're filled with crumbs, you know. Ugh. Vacuum up those crumbs. Um, you know, do your best to get rid of the chametz and, you know, and 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 at the, you know, call it a day. You, you can do, you do it. This is, I think the danger of Passover cleaning is that it, it kind of leads into some of the compulsions and obsessions that some of us may have. Um, and we get, we get so caught up in making sure that we're like getting rid of every drop of chametz that we lose sight of what this is actually about. And if we turn it into just spring cleaning and we just turn it, then we're actually losing sight of the whole spiritual meaning of what it is that we're doing. If we're turning it into cleaning for the sake of our own cleanliness, then we're actually losing sight of the fact that we're not cleaning for our own cleanliness. We're cleaning for God and we're cleaning to follow the Torah instead of holding on to that. In a similar vein, I will just kind of point out that for many of us, refraining from eating chametz for seven days or eight days could maybe potentially be difficult, more or less difficult, depending on our eating habits, but fine and doable and healthy and part of a fine diet for us for a week. There are those in our community, maybe maybe the you who are listening, who have histories with eating disorders or disordered eating, and adding that time kind of structure into your eating habits could be really detrimental to your health. I would say, like, really consult with your rabbi and your therapist and your health professionals to make sure that you're doing something that is is safe for you. We're not refraining from eating chametz is a huge value in Judaism. It's really important, as we mentioned, that the the consequence for eating chametz is karet, which is kind of like the worst punishment you can have in Judaism. At the same time, Judaism always says 
you know, you should live by the laws and not die by them. And you really need to kind of work on with your own health professionals, your own rabbi, your own spiritual care, what it is that you can do. Like maybe it is that you are going to avoid the five grains, but you're really not going to worry about like derivatives of different things. And, you know, kitten yell, like there are things that you can do to kind of hopefully make it a, a really safe uh, a really safe week for yourself. Yeah. I also want to just make sure we don't forget one one more of uh, Rabbi Rachel's uh, tips here, which is the fact that this idea of chametz is prohibited kol shehu, or any amount of chametz is only prohibited on Pesach. If you buy a, many products um, that you buy, if you buy it before Pesach, um, you do not have to observe those rules. And actually, if you buy a product before Pesach, it can be, it's enough for it to be considered bitul v'shishim, uh, nullified within 160th, which is the normal amount of nullification. Well, so let's, let's dive into that for just 30 seconds. So there is no prohibition against owning or eating chametz before Passover. So before Passover, if you buy a bag of quinoa and it's labeled gluten-free and you're pretty sure there's no chametz in it, but it's not labeled kosher for Passover... Even if there's like a little bit of like, I've heard that like some quinoa is dried. I think like in Peru, it's like dried like with wheat on top of it to like keep pests away. Um, So if like a tiny little bit of that wheat came in, if you buy it before Passover, it's nullified. It does not, it does not exist. And then it's once it's nullified by most authorities, there are some authorities that say it comes back during Passover, but that's not the ones we follow. The ones we follow say it's, it's nullified um, and you can eat it. So, um, Things that often we do this with is like milk. We'll buy all the milk we need before Passover starts. It doesn't need a special kosher Passover marking. Meat, kosher meat, except for ground meat, all like regular kosher meat, um, does not need a kosher Passover marking. You can just buy it before Passover. Um, If it's, um, you know, some people have the custom of rinsing it off just to be 100% sure, but you don't need to buy specially meat. And then there's foods that you can buy even during Passover, like an apple. You can buy an apple during Passover. You don't need to raw foods, basically. right? Raw, you know, like raw, whole, uncut fruits and vegetables. You can buy unless you have reason to know that the pesticides that they use or like the anything that they use is derived from chametz. But if you don't have reason to know that, then um, then you can assume that it's kosher to kosher to buy without any sort of special kosher Passover marking. Any last tips for our listeners? I would really highly encourage you to download the Rabbinical Assembly Passover Guide. It's really helpful. It gives you a list of how to kosher almost everything in your kitchen. It tells you which foods you can buy before Passover without a special kosher Passover label, which foods you can buy um, during Passover without a special kosher Passover uh, label. It's really, really helpful. Um, And of course, we are certainly here for you to answer any and all questions, help you uh, navigate all of these laws. We love it. I can tell you that like the best question that rabbis get is like halachic questions. We studied a really long time in school to learn all of this um, and we don't get to we don't get to teach it that often. So please don't be shy. If you have any questions at all about making your home kosher or Passover, please ask us. We'd love to we'd love to work it through with you. And I hope I really hope from, from myself to you that you have a meaningful Pesach, that you're really experiencing the joy of liberation and the joy of renewal and the joy of reconnection to God and that you find it through these mitzvot that are sometimes challenging and sometimes can be a struggle and and maybe hopefully find inspiration in that struggle itself and in that hardship itself 
um, that that rising up to do it um, in the face of being tired and whatever reason it whatever reason is stopping us really makes who we are as a Jew, and that's really really important. So I hope you are inspired this time. I hope you experience joy by the holiday. So Chag Pesach Sameach to you. Happy Passover, everyone. And without, we can't end without this. Of course, remember to subscribe and review <laughs> and comment and, and all of those lovely things that really does help us and it helps other listeners find our podcast, which is really important because we think that the messages and the teachings that we bring in this are really important. And uh, obviously, you can email us anytime. What is our email again, Rabbi Rachel? Living Jewishly podcast at gmail.com. Email us anytime at that address. I also um, saved the Living Jewishly podcast Instagram, but I haven't posted anything to it. Ooh. But follow us on Instagram. Maybe I'll post something if we get we some might followers. Start an Instagram eventually. <laughs> Stay tuned. So that is happening. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you, like usual, to our un- unbelievable producer and editor, uh, Jesse Ulrich at Rand 9 Productions. Um, and of course, our wonderful, wonderful theme music from Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger. Take it away. Oh, oh, oh. come celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus and Rachel.